0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Early ballots went in the mail last week, and Election Day is just over two weeks away. On today's show, we'll explain what all those ballot questions are about, so you can be prepared to cast your vote. Let's start with some of the statewide propositions. First, Proposition 125. Across the country, state retirement systems are in danger of failure. Two years ago, Arizona made changes to the retirement system for police and firefighters. Proposition 125 would make changes to the state retirement plans for corrections officers and elected officials as part of a continued effort to stabilize the pension system. A yes vote will change annual benefit increases for those employees to a cost-of-living formula tied to inflation instead of the current investment performance model. A no vote would keep the plan as is. Next up, Proposition 126. This measure would prevent the legislature or any local government from imposing a tax on a service-based industry like haircuts, childcare, or real estate transactions. The proposal also prevents an increase in any existing service tax. The idea was placed on the ballot through the Citizens Initiative process and the efforts of the Arizona Association of Realtors. A yes vote will prohibit the state and local governments from enacting any new or increased tax on services. A no vote allows for future taxation. One of the highest-profile ballot issues this year deals with renewable energy. As AZPM's Vanessa Barchfield explains, the decision by Arizona voters could determine the state's energy future.
1: Proposition 127 would amend the state constitution and require energy utilities, including Tucson Electric Power, to get half of their electricity from renewable sources like wind and solar by the year 2030. Now, Arizona already has a renewable energy standard. It says that 15 percent of energy needs to come from renewables by the year 2025. Former Corporation Commissioner Chris Mays volunteers with Clean Energy for a Healthy Arizona, the group that's pushing for Prop 127. She says the current standard, which she co-authored in the mid-2000s, was a good start.
2: But we are now following far behind our neighbors.
1: California's governor, Jerry Brown, signed a law last month that will move the state to 100 percent renewable energy by 2045. May says she sees renewable energy as a major tool for job creation. And with its abundant sunshine, Arizona has the potential to be generating large amounts of solar power. On the other hand, if the state doesn't make progress, she says we will lose out on jobs and economic development.
2: Major corporations like Google. Google and Amazon, uh, Microsoft, they are all creating internal renewable energy requirements. And they are not setting up headquarters, they are not creating new facilities in states where the utilities are not able or willing to produce renewable energy for them.
1: The group Arizonans for Affordable Electricity is leading the charge against Prop 127. Matthew Benson is their spokesperson.
3: We refer to this as an energy tax in a lot of ways because it is going to tack on a significant additional cost every time you get that bill at the end of the month.
1: The No campaign cites several different estimates for how much this could cost consumers, including a report from TEP that says the measure could add $500 a year to electricity bills for Tucsonans.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think people kind of understand that there's no free lunch. So if you're going to require that public utilities phase out all of their uh, base uh, coal-fired plants and then replace it with Thousands and thousands of megawatts worth of solar farms, new transmission lines, battery power, uh, that that's expensive. It costs billions and billions of dollars. Those costs have to get passed along to consumers, and there you go.
1: May says that claim is just false, and the report from the Natural Resources Defense Council says the measure would actually save consumers more than $4 billion through 2040.
2: We know that renewable energy sources like solar and wind are coming in at Uh, record low prices, 2.2 cents a kilowatt hour in the case of solar. Um, We're seeing that it's actually reducing utility bills in states like Colorado and Nevada. So when you look at the actual price of renewable energy, you see that there is absolutely no way that what the utilities are saying about renewable energy in Prop 127 could be true.
1: The No One 127 campaign also says the proposition would lead to the inevitable closure of the Navajo Generating Station. That's the country's largest nuclear power plant, and it's located about 50 miles west of Phoenix. Uh,
3: The initiative basically makes Palo Verde uneconomical to operate.
1: May says there's nothing in the measure that would lead to the plant's closure. Arizona Public Service, or APS, co-owns the plant with six other utilities across the Southwest. May says that means APS doesn't have the authority to close the plant.
2: That nuclear power plant is going to stay there. It's gonna live out its useful life. The campaigns are also trading barbs
1: over funding. Matthew Benson says Prop 127 is being bankrolled by San Francisco-based billionaire Tom Steyer, who's a major backer of progressive candidates and measures.
3: This is not an Arizona idea supported by Arizonans. Uh, This is a California idea that is brought to us by a California billionaire.
2: I am grateful that someone is helping us to fight APS and to fight the forces that have refused to allow us to do more clean energy in Arizona.
1: Arizona utilities don't support the measure. APS is the largest utility in the state. Its parent company, Pinnacle West, poured millions of dollars into trying to keep the measure off November's ballot, unsuccessfully. And the company is now pumping money into the no campaign. TEP is also bankrolling a group that's fighting the proposition. May says APS has also spent millions of dollars influencing the Arizona Corporation Commission, which regulates utilities. And
2: those commissioners have basically done what APS wanted them to do. Um, They have stopped the progress of renewable energy and clean energy in the state.
3: Arizona Public Service is an Arizona company. They've been here for over a century. Uh, And they're going to be here after the election to deal with the the ramifications, whatever, whatever may come.
1: The one point that both campaigns can agree on is that Proposition 127 will fundamentally change the course of Arizona's electricity future. They just have very different ideas about what that means. I'm Vanessa Barchfield reporting for The Buzz.
0: To get a broader perspective on Proposition 127, we spoke with Joshua Rhodes, a research associate at the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. I started by asking him what makes Prop 127 so unique. So what makes this unique is that it's an actual constitutional
4: amendment. There have been plenty of other RPSs, or Renewable Portfolio Standards, that have been passed in in multiple states around the the country, including Texas and California and Colorado and, and the like. But most of them are either, you know, they they come from executive orders or they come from you know laws passed by legislature or they even come from some regulatory bodies that have set those in motion. And there have been a few other states that have tried to do constitutional amendments, but I don't think any others have been successful in that. And so that, that kind of sets this one aside. If this one passes, I think it might be the first constitutional amendment renewable portfolio standard.
0: The fight against Prop 127 is in Arizona is largely financed by the Arizona Public Service, which is the state's largest utility. Why do utilities oppose these standards?
4: Well, it will require them to do more and do different than they possibly would have um, before. And the utilities, the public service commissions, all of these uh, bodies, you know—they they're there to make sure that the power's on, that, that it's reliable, and, I mean, introducing large amounts of wind and solar could make their job a little harder. It doesn't make it impossible, but it could make their job a little harder. And so they may um, you know, want to push back against that type of thing.
0: Having looked at these across the country, proponents here say this will create tons of jobs, especially in the solar industry. Opponents say it will dramatically increase Arizona's electricity bills. Who's right? That's a good question. So particularly in the
4: construction phase with solar, you will get a lot of jobs. There are a lot of jobs that come out when building these. There's not so many jobs that stay kind of long term. So the maintenance associated with uh, solar farms is not, is not near as many jobs as the construction, the building of the solar farm. Now these will be stretched out. So the construction of these will be stretched out over multiple years. So you'd see, you know, these jobs being staged. It's not all built in year one. Things like wind, they have jobs that tend to stick around a little longer because wind farms have moving parts, and there there tend to be more jobs per megawatt that stick around long term. A lot of the you know assumptions that go into uh, the various models, I think I saw anywhere from people are estimating that it will reduce bills or maybe increase them by you know a few dollars to all the way up to two thousand some odd dollars per year. Predicting that future is is really hard. I would probably pay more attention to the models that you can actually see the underlying analysis of, so you can see the results. These shouldn't be that complicated.
0: Can you talk about the role of natural gas in terms of driving down demand for coal and other things? And are those changes that are taking place without a push for renewables? So are these efforts really even necessary?
4: since fracking has come along the you know the price of domestic natural gas has just plummeted actually just the, a couple months ago the. US became a net gas exporter for the first time since 1957. I mean we have so much gas and the price is so low right now that it's just cheaper to generate electricity from gas than it is coal. A lot of coal plants are retiring just for the fact that they're old they're being replaced with gas because you can build gas for about a third of the cost it's twice as efficient and it you know the fuels about the same cost and it's flexible which also comes in handy when you've got a bunch of renewables on the grid. Although, you know, it has um, diminishing returns, you know, every time a gas plant replaces a coal plant, carbon emissions goes down, but gas still does produce emissions. And so we can only get so far with gas. So if we want to go further, we either need to employ some kind of, you know, carbon capture technologies or we need to employ um, technologies that don't produce uh, CO2 when they make electricity.
0: We're talking with Dr. Joshua Rhodes, an energy researcher at the University of Texas at Austin. Mm -hmm. Where does Arizona fit nationally when it comes to renewable energy goals?
4: So if Proposition 127 passed, it would put Arizona tied at second place as far as RPSs goes. I think Hawaii is the only one. I think they go up to 95%. So if this passes, it would put Arizona pretty uh, pretty up the curve in terms of a uh, generation of electricity from renewables.
0: Do reports released uh, like the one everybody is talking about by the IPCC and the UN raising the alarm about climate change make a difference in the way people and voters think about this type of ballot question? Well, I would hope so.
4: Climate change is a really big problem that we're going to have to deal with. And I mean, we're charging that interest on credit cards that, you know, we're not going to have to pay for, you know, a little while longer, but once once it comes, it'll be expensive. So I hope it's something that uh, that people are paying attention to. There's so much happening, you know, today in the news with, you know, all kinds of things, particularly at the federal level, that some of this, you know, might get lost even though it's, you know, the world's most brilliant scientists saying, hey, we've got a problem here. We need to do something.
0: A number of states, as you mentioned, have similar things in law about using more and more renewable energy. What is the critical mass of states when this goes federal or more and more states just start picking it up because they have to?
4: So there's a couple dozen or a few dozen over 30 states that have RPS uh, goals out there. Some have already been met. And uh, some are still on the books or some are getting stricter. Some states have started with, you know, a, a low goal and then have tightened it up over time. So any state that does not have some sort of RPS is in the minority now. But again, some of those states have already, you know, already surpassed that. And they're not there's no mandates to go any further. And some states where even where the mandates have not gone any further, they're continuing to build because society wants it. A lot of corporations these days are driving renewable uh, investment. So they're wanting, you know, to say we run on 100 percent renewable energy or this product is created or built with renewable energy. And so, you know, those kinds of, you know, values that are being injected into the system are also having measurable impact. So it's not just states driving this, really. We're seeing a lot of the private sector driving it. And I don't know that we'll see any federal driving of it anytime soon.
0: The governor recently admitted that he signed a bill passed by the legislature this year that would essentially gut 127 if it passes. Is that
4: surprising? You know, it's not surprising that a bill like that would have been put through. So I believe, if I'm correct, it, it basically stipulates that if a utility does not meet the requirements put out by Proposition 127, that they would have a very minimal fine of some sort, maybe just a few thousand or a few hundred dollars. But the interesting part here is that, you know, while a, a law like that might stand for an RPS that was either just a, a regulatory construct or was a, a regular law passed, I think if it becomes part of the Arizona constitution, I think I would think that would open it up to to quite a bit of court challenging. I think it'd be probably really easy to challenge. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but courts are, you know, there to interpret the law, and if that is, you know, part of the law and a particular part of the constitution, I imagine that type of law could be easily overturned and it probably would be challenged almost immediately if 127 passes.
0: So are there any downsides to this type of a proposal when it comes to the technology side?
4: One of the downsides with RPSs um, RPS as a Renewable Portfolio Standards is that it can limit you in the technologies that we've got. If we're really serious about trying to fight climate change, which is, you know, at, at its core what these things are about we might want to consider broadening the scope of what technologies are available. So like what California did a little while ago, their, their more recent law is just carbon-free electricity, not specifically renewables. Now, it may turn out that that becomes just renewables. But, you know, allowing things like either nuclear or carbon capture technologies can give a few more tools in the toolbox that might make it a little bit easier to meet those goals.
0: That was Joshua Rhodes, a research associate at the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. This week we're exploring the statewide and local ballot propositions Southern Arizona voters will decide on in a couple of weeks. Proposition 306 would make changes to the Citizens' Clean Election Commission, an independent nonpartisan oversight board created by voters. The commission provides public funding for qualifying candidates and enforces campaign finance law. Currently, the commission is independent, meaning it does not answer to the governor or legislature. Prop 306 would prohibit candidates from transferring public funds to a political party or organization and would put the commission's rulemaking under the authority of a council appointed by the governor. Proponents argue it will keep public money out of party politics, Opponents argue, however, it will weaken the authority and independence of the Clean Elections Commission. A yes vote would put the Clean Elections Commission rulemaking authority under the regulatory oversight of the Governor's Council and prohibit candidates from transferring public funds to political parties or politically driven organizations. A no vote would leave the Commission's independent authority as is, and allow the commission to determine whether publicly-funded candidates can transfer those funds to political parties or organizations. Another high-profile ballot initiative, 305, deals with empowerment scholarships or vouchers. We talked to Hank Stevenson, formerly education reporter for the Arizona Daily Star, now with Yellow Sheet. I started with a simple question. What is Prop 305? So the legislature two years
5: ago uh, sent a bill through there signed by Doug Ducey that would have expanded our empowerment scholarship accounts. Uh, they're essentially vouchers uh, for private schools. If, if you want to send your kid to a private school or even homeschool them, you can apply to uh, get a debit card, essentially, that uh, the state puts money onto. And the idea is you're not putting your kids into public schools, but you're still paying taxes as if you did, so you should get some kind of a rebate to use as you see fit. Essentially, as long as it's for educational purposes. So, we've had this program for a long time. The only people who are allowed into it, there's kind of these subcategories. You've got Native American students living on a reservation, you've got military families, and it started with disabled kids because they couldn't get the education that they deserved at a lot of their neighborhood schools. So, the legislature last year basically said now anyone can apply for an empowerment scholarship account, a voucher, essentially and the governor signed it. And there's a process by which voters can actually collect signatures and force a referendum on any law signed by the governor. So that's what they did. It was a heck of a feat to be able to go out and get these signatures in a very short order. Uh, It was kind of the middle of summer. It was hot. It was mostly volunteer done, but they forced a up or down vote on this law. So if you like empowerment scholarship accounts and want to see them expanded, you want to vote yes on the law to put the law in place. If you don't like them, you want to vote no against the law.
0: So what happens if the majority of voters vote no and the law comes off the books? Can the legislature just go back and pass it again? So there's some discussion about this. We've also got what's called the Voter Protection
5: Act. You'll remember this was put in place after uh, we voted for medical marijuana several times and legislature just ignored that vote. So basically, the legislature can't undo anything that the voters approve. But because this is voting no, did the voters approve anything or did they reject it? The general consensus seems to be that the Voter Protection Act won't apply to a no vote on this and that the legislature will be free to come back and do the exact same thing next year and the exact same thing the year after that. We saw Doug Ducey get asked about this at a recent debate here at AZPM. And he said, essentially, if I understood it right, he said, uh, you know, I'm a fan of these vouchers, of these empowerment scholarship accounts, and I want to see them expanded. Uh, I don't think he answered directly, yeah, if this is voted down, I'm going to
0: sign a new bill next year. But there's going to be a push for that to happen, certainly. Some conservative groups are now starting to advise, I don't want to say their members, but people who listen to them to vote against it. Why would conservative groups who support the empowerment scholarships, the vouchers, want it to fail? I think that they read the writing on the wall in large part. They're looking at this and
5: saying, we're going to get creamed. You know, I don't—I haven't heard from anybody in quite a long time who thinks this is, this is going to be a competitive campaign. It's going to fail most likely. We've seen weirder things happen, but all the predictors are saying that this is going to go down. So I think that's part of it. Just, you know, not wanting to be out front of something that's going to fail. And I think part of it is they don't want to spend the money on mounting a campaign against this. There's been very little money put into it. There are really only a handful of people, and I've talked to a lot of the Republican lawmakers who voted for this law are now saying, you know, now that it's on the ballot, I don't want to approve it. And some of them are trying to say kind of the inverse of that, the Voter Protection Act, that if it is approved at the ballot, then maybe it is voter protected, meaning that the legislature can't get in there and change things very easily. I think that's kind of a smokescreen. I think people are realizing it's going to fail and nobody wants to be advocating for a
0: failing proposition. And one of the things they could change if it's approved is it has a cap of 30,000 students a year on it, even though the scholarships would be available to all students, the application process would be available to all students. 30,000 kids a year could get it. That number could be easily changed by the legislature.
5: Yeah, and the original version of the bill did not have that cap in it. And then they, you know, kind of at the last minute through some uh, maneuvering to get votes and some amendments, they said, okay, we'll cap it. We'll only have a certain amount, meaning anybody can apply, but, you know, only this many we're giving out. And it it grows each year until it kind of hits a a firm limit in a couple of years. But as soon as that happened, there were people saying, okay, you know, now we got to work on removing that cap. The fact is right now we're not even hitting the cap. So they're going to have to grow pretty quickly to hit that cap and people will argue that these are not vouchers and I guess you know it, that argument is in some ways correct it doesn't specifically pay for your education at a school and in a lot of cases the amount that you're getting from the voucher does not match the cost that it's that it costs to send your kid to a private school so in order to use these things you've got to have the means to kick in the rest of the money.
0: Staying with school funding issues, voters in Southern Arizona will see six propositions on the November ballot in which they can decide to accept or reject bonds and overrides for education funding in their school districts. Manny Valenzuela has run the Saurita School District for the past nine years. He says homeowners and business leaders alike are talking about education spending more than usual and looking at bonds and overrides in a new light.
1: a real willingness to invest a significant amount of money toward this service called public education.
0: But Superintendent Valenzuela says he can also understand why some voters would rather see school districts tighten their spending further.
1: It's an additional cost, which we're very sensitive to locally, uh, and I'm certainly sensitive to that every time we ask our community to invest additional dollars out of their pocket.
0: Locally, voters in Tucson and Pima County will have a say on several ballot issues. Proposition 463 has been billed by Pima County as the Fix Our Roads Plan. Voters are being asked to pass a $430 million bond that would be split according to population of communities within the county. Pima County Administrator Chuck Huckleberry says everyone complains about the area's terrible roads, He says Prop 463 is a chance to fix that. The alternative is to continue to do what we've been doing for the last uh, few years, and that's kind of a pay-as-you-go repair program, which means that it will take decades to catch up. It's a long-term fix, and so it requires basically a fairly significant capital investment. But proponents of Prop 463 argue that if the county had really been fixing the roads a little at a time, there would be no problem with the condition of county roads. Realtor John Backer says the county has money, it just needs to be appropriated better.
3: 70 percent of our roads are in poor and failing condition, That didn't happen overnight. It took decades of neglect from our administrator and board of supervisors for us to be in this position. We've got a $1.3 billion annual budget, and all that it would take is a very measly amount out of that total to prevent us from being in this situation again.
0: If Proposition 463 passes, Tucson's share of the $430 million would be the largest at around $200 million. If voters pass Proposition 407 in November, they're giving the city of Tucson the go-ahead on a $225 million bond package aimed primarily at fixing and upgrading most of Tucson's parks. Parks Director Brent Dennis says funding parks is a well-defined obligation of the city. If you look at the charter for the city of Tucson, there are three primary responsibilities.
5: Those include public safety, streets and roadways, and the third is parks.
0: The money will build things like new splash pads, shade structures, and playgrounds. It also lists irrigation and lighting upgrades among possible projects. Prop 407 also has connections in the name, which refers to things like bicycle and pedestrian improvements, as well as linear parks. Officials say the proposition works within existing bond capacity and will not raise property taxes. Finally, Proposition 408 would change the Tucson City Charter. It would move elections for the mayor and council from odd-numbered years to even-numbered years. The state legislature has tried to force Tucson to do this in the past, but courts have ruled it's up to city voters to make the change. A yes vote would approve this change, which would mean the terms of the current mayor and council would be extended one year so that elections could be held in 2020 instead of 2019. A no vote will leave the election schedule as is during odd-numbered years. And that's the buzz for this week. If you missed some of the ballot initiatives or want a reference as you cast your vote, find all the information from today's show on our website, azpm.org. You can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. Ariana Brochus produced and edited the show. Tony Perkins, Nancy Montoya, Nico Guerra, and Vanessa Barchfield contributed to the reporting. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover,